Hello, and welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative with Lauren LaGrasso. My name's Lauren LaGrasso, and this show is meant to help you make creativity the filter for your life, redefine your relationship with fear by taking it out of the driver's seat, step more fully into the essence of who you are, and claim your right to have a dream and take up space. Today, you'll hear from a multi-talented songwriter and producer who has tips on how to spread your creative wings, embrace the slump, and fall back in love with your craft. But before we jump in, I want to ask you a favor. If you love the show and it has helped you, please consider leaving a rating and review. It really helps bring the show visibility and push it up the charts so we can help and connect with more creatives. Also, consider sharing the show on your Instagram stories or Twitter. Tag the guest at Unleash Your Inner Creative, and at Lauren LaGrasso, and I will repost to share my gratitude. Now to the guest. Today you'll hear from Michael Jade, or Mikey as I like to call him. Mikey is a singer, songwriter, and producer signed with Warner Chapel. He's written songs for huge artists including Ava Max, David Guetta, G-Eazy, Little Big Town, Andy Grammer, B. Miller, and so many more. He was also a finalist on both American Idol and The Voice Israel. And aside from his music career, he also has a deep curiosity for spirituality and meditation that he's currently channeling into a fiction novel. I wanted to have Mikey on the show because he's made his creative pursuit somewhat of a science. He found practical tools that can help all creatives really listen to their intuition and even rekindle the love they have for their passion. More than anything else, Mikey will inspire you to stray from the path of least resistance. He switched careers, jumped into creative hobbies he knew nothing about, and even said no to a record deal on intuition alone. Pretty impressive. If you're currently asking yourself, what's worth my time? He will teach you exactly how to trust yourself in those moments of deep questioning. So I can't wait to introduce you to him. Here he is, Michael Jade. Mikey, you are such a gem of a human being, such a talented artist. I'm so excited and blessed to have you on the show. Oh, you're so sweet. Welcome to Unleash Your Inner Creative. Oh my God. This is great. Uh, So I want to take us back in time. Little Mikey, what was the inciting incident of your creative journey? I think like creativity is almost something you see better in retrospect. So- I can't say for sure that if I did have a creative moment when I was a kid, I knew it then, which is probably why it was creative. So looking back, I've been told that I played alone a lot with like toys and made stories a lot with action figures. So I would like hide under tables and under the bed for hours on end and just like you just hear my voice from the other room just making a lot of different voices and stuff. That was the first iteration of creativity. Yeah. I guess. I didn't pick up a guitar and, or anything musical until actually that was pretty early too like around 4 or 5 I was like I was like Oh you're so old. struggling yeah. <laughs> Not until then. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I cuz I forgot. I actually did for cuz I started I wrote my first song when I was 9. But when I was like 5 I was like just strumming for the family. Yeah. Like in a circle, just being a narcissist from that early age. Well, they love it. And you know what? I know you're Jewish. I'm Italian. There's a lot of similarities in our cultures. A lot of it. And uh, they always made me perform. And I remember I loved it, but I'd like pretend to get all embarrassed about it. But you know, the families encourage the talent. Have you ever seen that Kristen Wiig bit on SNL where she's like, don't make me sing. Come on, don't make me sing. But but she really wants to sing. Yeah, I've never seen it, but I have to look it up after that. But that I definitely relate to that. <laughs> okay, so you started writing music when you were very young. Did you have a musician in the family? Like, how did you know that was a thing? Because we've talked, you know, you've yeah. given me some great advice and some mentorship in music. And I was letting you know, like, I wrote music kind of my whole life, but I didn't recognize that I was writing music because there were no musicians in my family. So I didn't get it until I actually picked up a guitar. Yeah. Were you like conscious, like I'm going to go write a song and now I'm a songwriter or was it just something that flew out of you? No, it was boredom, sheer boredom, being nine and having nothing in the house except a piano and a guitar in the basement, I should say. I was kind of a Lego guy. I tried the Lego thing. Legos, like playing with Legos? Yeah, like building things with Legos. Okay. <laughs> and I wasn't, um, there were no cell phones, thank God. I, we didn't have like a computer, didn't have internet, which I think is a huge and really interesting thing. I, I feel like we are the last generation that had a significant chunk of our lives mm -hmm. pre-internet and pre-phones. 
tinkering around with things that wasn't a phone or a laptop was a lot easier because you just needed to fill your time with something else. But no, to answer your question, my, my dad played guitar. My dad loved singing. So there was music around the house a lot, but, and I think my grandmother, I don't think, I know she was a piano teacher, but I never really interacted with her musically. Mm. I was kind of like a, you know, the black sheep in the family in the sense that everyone went medical or academic, except for my sister, who's an actor or was an actor, but yeah. And how was that looked at in your family? Was it encouraged? Yeah. They were super supportive right off the bat, as long as I did my homework. I'm sure in the back of their minds, they were like... Uh, hope this works out. Let's, you know, but they were always very, very supportive and they applauded. <laughs> mm. Applause is like important for a little kid, I think. I think so too. When you show them a picture of the thing you made in school, they, you know, even if it's garbage, they you should get an applause for it. Well, it's important because you have to encourage kids' creativity. And if they yeah. think, you know, there's a show I did with this woman named Susan Robertson and she's studied creativity and why we lose it in modern work environments. And it's because of something called negativity bias. But it happens because kids are taught that there's a consequence to being wrong. Right. And so, I mean, if you applaud their little drawing, even if it's not great, but you applaud the fact that they created something, they're going to be a lot more likely to be a creative employee down the road, even if they don't go into a traditionally, quote unquote, creative field. Right. You know, so I think that that is such an important note to encourage creativity in children and adults alike. Totally. When you said creative field, you kind of hit it on the head on where being creative can start to become right and wrong because inherently creativity can't be right or wrong. It's creativity. But when it starts to have to be monetized and sold and exploited is when there is objectiveness to it. And I, I, I'm very fascinated with the topic of where is objectivity in creativity? Because there's so much subjectivity. You know, everyone has their tastes and their opinions. But at some point, there is this objective thing when everyone hears a song that everyone just or most people love. And you, when the minute you hear it, you're like, okay, this though, this song. How many times have you played people 10 songs and there's an overwhelming amount of people saying that one. Yeah. And usually everyone's like, that's the single. In movies, in shows, in any kind of art form, there's like the thing that just... And I'm always like trying to pick apart a little bit like a scientist, like what is the objective thing working there that in the sea of subjective creativity and things that are just opinion-based, where is that solid factual stuff? Is just interesting to me. But as a kid, getting the confidence to even try to be creative, I agree. At that level, there's no room for right or wrong. You just need to encourage it. Mm -hmm. And I, I would say, too, as an adult trying new things, you need to endow yourself with the same compassion you would give to a child trying new things. Yes. I call it the art of being bad at something. Like if I had known all the rules of songwriting the first year I was writing music, I never would have played a gig because I would have yeah. been like, this sucks. What am I doing? Exactly. <laughs> you know? So I think it's it's really important as an adult trying new things to give yourself that same level of compassion and empathy that you'd give to a child or to your younger self. But I'm curious, in, in your scientific study of what makes something objectively good, have you found any through lines? Yes. Yeah, I think I have. One is simplicity. Simplicity seems to be through and through something that is just universally resonant. Um, being emotional mm. and pandering to people's humanness and their emotions. You know, it sounds obvious, but like the amount that that is overlooked is huge, you know, because people go into craft. And when you go into craft, you get very clever and intellectual and brainy and smart with things. And it's so easy to overlook just basic raw human emotion. So I'd say those two are big ones. And, and so, so when it comes to simplicity, that can manifest itself in a lot of ways in lyric and melody and instrument and arrangement. I'm talking now obviously about songs, but across any medium. And in clarity is maybe another big one. Could you give an example of a song you think does this particularly well? A popular song that we'd know? I mean, you know, let's say like 
as big as okay yesterday by the Beatles. I'll go as cliche as it gets here. Oh man, when I was so depressed, I used to listen to that song. I was like, yeah, all my troubles did seem far away yesterday. Right, exactly. <laughs> I mean, and if you just take that yeah. lyric, just that first line, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. There's no brainy words in there. It's just an arrangement of words we all know very, very well, but that just slam you right into the center of the heart. And what I love about it is that it says, I'm sad, without saying I'm sad. Or another song I love that says, I love you, to me was that this one always hit me so hard, was God Must Have Spent a Little More Time on You by NSYNC. Yeah. Remember that song? Of course. I, to this day, there are few lyrics, because we're all trying to say, I love you, I miss you, I'm sad, I hate you. There's all These are like the basic cores of a lot of songs. And to find a way to say it in a way that's never been said before is just the hardest thing to do. People think it's like easy, but it's really, it's really difficult. And so I remember when I first heard just that one line, God must have spent a little more time on you. I'm like, oh, I'm a 13-year-old girl. <laughs> and also, yeah, and with yesterday, the melody's very simple. It's like the staircase. You know, yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Then he repeats it. And it almost feels like you've heard it before. Yeah. Melodies are derived from like really classic patterns. So do you ever get scared when you're writing a song that you have heard it before because it feels that familiar to you? I used to be a lot more scared of that. There are 12 notes. You know, the parameters that you have with which to play with note wise, you have, you know, you have rhythm, you have speed, you have the notes themselves, you have then there's like timbre and all these things to play with. So I'm not I mean, if you play me any song, I'm sure if we had enough time, I could find 15 songs that borrow hugely a lot that share a lot of those same melodies and that, you know, that they were inspired by this or by that. So I've become way less scared with that. There does come a point, obviously, where it it, it does become almost plagiarism, where you're just borrowing so many parameters, you know, the same key, the same speed, the same tempo, the same melody, the same vibe, that then you really are like a, a musicologist would say like, this is plagiarism and now, you know, which that that's happened before. I did. I've done that before too. I, I wrote a, what's that song by a Jesse, Jesse J. It's like, <laughs> I'm feeling sexy yeah. and free. I wrote that song, but I was like, I made the wrong choice. Wow. <laughs> and I was like, why is this song so good? I'm a fucking genius. <laughs> and then I was like, <laughs> well, wait a second. Wait, 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 wait. Real quick. Hold on, hold on. I don't think you plagiarized. You did. No, because the first thing you did was, I'm feeling sexy and I'm, I can't do that run, but free. That little thing you did, that is the nugget. Oh. That is the defining nugget. That's why- Shit, I'm going back to that song. Go back to it because all you took was the- what, 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 what was I the, made the, the wrong choice. Okay, that's not stealing. If you would have done, I made the wrong choice, then it's like, okay, you did that little Nike sign thing. But that, because that's the thing. But if you just do the little front part of the Nike sign, it's just a V. So fuck off, Jesse J. That's just a melody. I could probably find 10 other songs that go. I'm going to start texting you every time I think I do that. I go, Mikey, am I stealing? Do it. I'll be your musicologist. Seriously. I, I, on the other hand, I wrote a song one day and I thought I was fucking genius. I did young, dumb, dumb, young, dumb and broke. Young, dumb, dumb, young, dumb, and broke. And then M goes, are you doing like a cover? Or like I invented this. And I, I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, you know that a song by Khalid just came out that's like, young, dumb, young, dumb, and broke. So I stole the lyric completely. <laughs> and, and also a fair amount of the vibe that it was unequivocally plagiarizing and there's no way i could ever put that out but no you're safe okay i'm going back to that song it was a good song it was about choosing the wrong guy great write it that one belongs to you i will believe me i will (laughs) done it a million times perfect but yeah i think that's also part of creativity and part of art is like they say like the greatest artists steal and there's an art to stealing Because really, you're not stealing, you're taking the gem of what's great, and then you're redressing it in a way that's where it's sort of buried in there. But I don't think any artist 
hasn't used inspiration. I mean, I guess what else is inspiration even for? I know, you know, and this is something that I don't think either of us are experts on. But what I'm really looking for right now is somebody who's like an expert in the delineations between inspiration, stealing and appropriation, because I think the lines are so blurred. And I've just seen a lot of like, even stuff on Instagram, like people calling each other out for stealing. And I'm like, Unless someone's actually taking exactly what you posted and then posting it on their own thing and saying they made it. Right. Is it stealing? I don't know. I don't know. Well, I mean, okay, look, if you listen to anything on the radio right now, there's these trap drums, right, for musicians out there. Trap drums have dominated pop music. And for somebody who's not a musician, let's explain what a trap drum is. I'm sorry. Yeah. Trap drums are just, it's like a sound of synthetic drum. That you'll hear in a lot of trap music, but it's also bled into hip hop, into pop. It's all over the place, even into country. It's all over the place. And there's even tempos where it works the best. It works the best between the range of like 140 to 160 beats per minute. So it's the reason a lot of people that don't like trap music will listen to five trap songs and go, I don't know, trap just sounds the same to me. It all sounds the same. Or people that don't like country will go, yeah, all country just sounds the same or all rap sounds the same. And it's because there are these guidelines these genres follow. Are they plagiarizing each other? I can't say they're plagiarizing each other, but they're borrowing so many things from each other. And I think that's what musicologists do is they are getting down to the science of like where it becomes plagiarism. But this is stuff that it's really fascinating because there are things that are where they're not plagiarizing melody, like blurred lines, if you remember. Yes. That's, that was a huge debacle. None of the melody was stolen. It was the beat. It was the groove, the production. But where you call a plagiarism, you know, so yeah. They're literally blurred lines. <laughs> they are literally blurred lines. <laughs> I can't believe nobody talked about that the whole time this legal battle was going on. <laughs> Guys, it was the lowest thing. Fruit, come on. <laughs> You're here to hear first. This, this is kind of news we break. <laughs> Only stupid news. Um, Okay, I want to go back to something you said, because I thought it was poignant. You talked about how you weren't a Lego kid. And I think a lot of people who are more, I believe everybody is creative, but people who are more overtly artists are in a position where their career is led by some sort of traditionally thought of creative path, um, did feel like they didn't fit in in some way whether it was like they were the super emotional one or they were the one that was always like writing something down or performing. I think it's very normal and natural to feel other. And I'm curious, I know you didn't feel that in your family, but did you feel that at all in school growing up? Yes. Yeah, definitely. I remember like sports was a big thing that a lot of guys in my school growing up were into. I was never really into sports. I kind of faked it. I tried to be like, I, I really wanted to be cool, Lauren. I really wanted to be cool. I mean, you're very cool. No, no. But like, I made a science out of it. I was like, okay, what are they? Like, I was a trend chaser. And it's something actually that I've fought with and struggled with my whole life, even well into my creative career, if that's what we're going to call it. Like, even while knowing that chasing trends is exactly what you don't want to do, I think it's something that anyone that wants to make money in any art form struggles with. So it does start very early on in childhood, I think. I I did have this need to fit in. So I would talk like the cool kids, but it didn't work on me. Like it just was totally all wrong. I tried, do you see this hair? Like this is Jewish European hair. I tried to spike it for years. I tried to spike my hair. I wore jerseys. I had a jersey phase where like all the kids were wearing jerseys and it was pathetic. But then when I came home, this was where the difference was, was when I came home, I did what I really wanted to do. So I would really just be alone a lot. And that's where I was being creative. And then when you stuck me into a school or stuck me in a group of people, I was a completely different person. And how did you start bringing that home, Mikey, to school and to other environments? I think confidence. I think confidence, which for me came much, much, much later in life. And for me, it was this like before and after for me. I do remember like a clear point in my life where I was like, I kind of became my own arrow, so to speak, rather than following wherever the arrow was, which always keeps changing. 
And I, at some point I realized it's impossible to follow someone else's arrow. So, and I'd be lying if I said it wasn't also positive reinforcement from the world, you know, like the world being like, you're good at this, keep, keep going in one way or another. So I think there does, you do need to collect an amount of that to build confidence. Some people don't need it. I wish I was like Sylvester Stallone, who supposedly wrote Rocky in poverty and had nothing going for him. And he just believed in it. And I don't know if JK Rowling had other things going on before Harry Potter, but some people really just- No, she didn't. Sometimes really big ideas seem like they were always going to be big ideas. So whenever you have an idea, do you let it take force? Because your girlfriend, Emily, and I were talking earlier, and we were talking about how shitty it feels when you're in the middle of something. So you start out, you're like, oh, yeah, like I got this like sexy new thing that I'm working on, and I can't wait, and I love it so much. And then it gets into the seven-year itch part of creativity where you're like, this feels terrible. Fuck this. I want to run in the opposite direction. This is bullshit. I sh- never should have started. Who do I think I am? I'm a hack. But if you can make it through that on the other side, a lot of times there's brilliance and then it starts feeling good again. And then it's your baby you push out into the world and share with everyone. Yeah. How do you make it through that seven year itch part of creativity? Patience. There is this j- just literally going, this is part of the process. I think. There is just that being okay with the slump, being okay with like the shitty feeling and just going and getting Chinese food and whatever you need to do to just get through it. Because there is this thing of you kind of just need to sleep on it sometimes. I think all creatives are very impatient yeah. people. They, they tend to be impatient because you want it to work and it doesn't feel good when it doesn't work. So I think that impatience drives a lot of people to like want to question it. I think there is an art to also getting good at just going, today was an off day. And I love to make a a joke out of it. I love on days when we wrote a shit song, I love to go, we just wrote a shit song today. Isn't that great? We tried. We showed up. I can't tell you how many times I've been, I'd work on a song for three weeks. I'll try every version under the sun of producing it only to come to the most heartbreaking realization that the song is bad Mm. and I just have to let it go. How do you know that? You feel it. So for me, I have this thing where I've stopped trusting my brain. I trust my body way more than my brain. I'll do this thing now where I'll go scooting. I bought like a little lime scooter type of thing. And I'll go for a scoot, smoke a little weed, and I'll listen to five or 10 songs that I love. And then I'll put on the song I'm working on right after that. And what I'll find is that those 10 songs literally create an energetic charge in my skin. I feel it particularly in my shoulders and my arms and my chest. And so then when I play my song, if that feeling goes away, there's a problem. And if that feeling stays there or it heightens, I'm like, okay, we have something good. And it's just like a scientist just looking at chemicals going, is this exploding? No. Okay. No problem. If not, that's fine. Put it away. And that's become my relationship with my work is where I just go Does this make me feel... I also make sure that I don't listen to the song for like two weeks beforehand so that I'm listening to it fresh and new and I don't have this time investment toward it. And so that detachment from the work has helped me a lot and with my personal method with it. But otherwise, to answer your question, the slump, I don't think it sucks anymore. I just see it as part of the job Mm. where like most corporate jobs, you show up and you do X work and now that work is completed where in our fields, in creative fields, you can spend nine hours on something and nothing productive was accomplished. And that's a really hard pill to swallow. But if you can kind of just accept that's part of the job is that nothing productive was accomplished for weeks or months sometimes. In those cases, if you can just accept that that's part of the job, then you don't see it as unproductive. You just see it as, I showed up, I did the thing, it sucked, and I'm going to do the thing tomorrow too. Wow. So it's an attitude change. It's an attitude change. Yeah. I just want to point out, you're the first person who's ever come on my podcast and talked about somatic yes body intelligence this is something that people don't really know about and i just want to point out what you said there because i think it's so powerful our body knows a lot of times before our brain i mean i've talked about it on the podcast where like i was at a job once and i was really miserable and i vomited every morning you know and i was like oh i probably have acid reflux i was like <laughs> no my body was trying to be like bitch get out of there yeah <laughs> it's scary <laughs> uh, 
love that. So, you know, we ignore our body a lot of times. We're really good at that, but we're really, unless we're tuning in, we're really pretty poor at listening. And so what you pointed out as a tool of knowing yourself and trusting yourself more is so powerful. And I think if we can figure out how our body feels when it's excited and when it's in flow and when we're fully ourselves, it tells us everything we need to know. It's a superpower. And I could not agree with you more. I think that for me was like an absolute game changer in going, oh, wait a minute. My body is talking to me in more ways than just the extreme. Like it talks on very, very subtle vibration. And if you learn to listen to it on a daily basis, it will talk. It will talk. And like that's for me how I'll get suddenly in a session really excited about a melody. Because, you know, at some point you listen to so many melodies that you're just like, what's even good? I don't know. I just don't know. And suddenly something, someone will do something in the room where I'll just get this thing. And we've all felt it. I'll just get this thing where it's like, I don't know why, but just chase this. And there's a reason we say the word, it feels good because it physically feels good. And so you'll chase that. I mean, that is flow, I think, you know, that is like you're chasing like you said, somatic vibration and energy. And when it comes from there, I think that resonates. Even the word resonate, to use that word, it's because we're talking about energy. How did you start to discover the intelligence of your body and to listen to that? Um, With meditation. So meditation, I got into probably seven or eight years ago. And it absolutely changed my life. And you don't have to ask me why. I mean, there's the science behind it is, you know, overwhelming. But for me, it was, it was when I started meditating was when I started to like, listen. And I hear you go on 10 day long, silent retreats, where you're not even allowed to have a piece of paper. (laughs) Yeah. Tell me about, first of all, like what drove you to do that? And then we can go from there. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so I started getting into it. Um, I was like listening to some podcasts and just kind of I started to dabble with it for a few years on and off. And I found it really boring for a long time. Then I would leave it and then come back to it. It wasn't like this overnight epiphany. It was like this. What is this? I've heard about this. I would try it. And then slowly, slowly, I started to see its real benefits And it wasn't like a theory. It wasn't like a, oh, this is supposed to be good for me, supposedly. I started to really see it interweave into my life. And then I started getting deeper and deeper into it. And then I'd heard about these 10-day silent meditation retreats. And maybe part of it was just, it was a challenge. Like I always get to a point a couple of years into anything that I'm like, I just want to shake things up and just do something weird and strange. Yeah. So I think for all those reasons, I, I decided to do it. Just take me through what was going through your mind, some of the touch points emotionally from day one to day 10. Yeah. So for anyone who's never meditated before, it's the longest 10 days of your life. Time really slows down because we're distracting our minds almost 24-7 from the moment we wake up. You're doing activities, we're on our phones, we're driving to this, we're working on that. And so you're distracted and you're not listening to your body. And so now you have 10 days where you are doing nothing but just moment to moment observing your body. So from day one to day 10, there's a lot of struggle with boredom. There's a lot of struggle with loneliness. There's a lot of frustration and wanting to leave. There's a lot of that. But there you are, you know, you drove all the way to the fucking desert, you're there, you're not going to like leave, you know, so you you sit through it and you just do it. In this particular program, you're not allowed to do three days first. The first time you do it, you have to do 10 days and then you do the three day. And the reason they do that is because you could muscle through the first three days. What does that mean? Muscle through means you could just be really bored and hate it for three days just to say you did it. So you could post on Instagram when you're done. I did a, a retreat. I'm so woke. Okay. So it'd be like the ego would muscle through those three days. Exactly. And they want to get beyond that. Yeah. And so the reason they want you to do 10 days is because when you're in like day five, six, seven, your brain goes, all right, bro, we need to renegotiate here. You can't just sit there for 13 hours a day 
you will go crazy. So this is the worst case scenario, obviously. Hopefully, you've meditated before, you get it, you, you know what you're there to do, and then you don't have that experience. But when you actually do the practice the way you're supposed to, and there is a right and wrong way to meditate, when you do it correctly, you start to experience some form of ego dissolution and you start to question things like, what am I? What is being a human? What are thoughts? What is identity? Things like that start to, you start to look at it like from above and some really profound things start to happen. And I've definitely had some of those experiences, especially day six, day seven. Also, the fact that for 10 days, there is no input into your mind. Mm. You feel this immense clarity where every day from the moment we wake up, there's text, there's emails, there's media, there's all this input, 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 input. It's all being jumbled around into thoughts and ideas and whatever. And then your output that comes out of your mouth and out of your work and out of your person is obviously going to be affected by all that input. But when you spend 10 days with literally no input, no one's talking to you, you're not even making eye contact with anyone. There's certainly no phones or anything. You're not reading anything. Suddenly, some interesting things start to happen. The quietest voices in your mind start to get louder. And those really, really, really quiet voices start to have some really interesting things to say. What was Mikey on day one versus Mikey on day 10? Like, what's the difference? And has that lasted? In a lot of ways, it's lasted. That that retreat for me, I remember was transformative because I learned a technique. People call it Vipassana, but there was a a way that it was done on this particular retreat that really influenced me a lot. And the technique was basically you're observing a very small sliver of your body first. So for for three days straight, I was instructed to just put 100% of my attention on the space between my nostrils and my upper lip. And just to feel the air going in and out in that tiny triangle. So for three days straight, 13 hours a day, you're like a sniper rifle of attention. And then over 10 days, you're expanding your awareness and eventually you're going to your entire body and you're scanning your entire body. And this technique of listening to my body, and when I say listening to my body, I'm saying being aware of sensation. That's all I mean. So any kind of sensation. And if you listen to your body, anywhere in your body, there's sensation happening at all times. There's bioparticles that are exploding and moving and changing and dying and growing and being birthed and all kinds of things happening. And there's electric currents happening. There's stuff happening all the time. And 10 days of tuning into those frequencies, when I left, I was like, oh, Not only are there things happening all the time, these things are affected by anything, by thoughts. These sensations are affected by... I remember I was so sensitive by day eight that somebody coughed across the room and it cascaded through into my ear and it went through me. I was so hypersensitive that even a cough from someone else burst through me. And so you have, you you put the face of someone who you really despise in your mind. All this stuff happens, it's like fireworks in there. And it was so interesting to think of myself in this physical way. You can't look at life the same after that. When you leave that, you can't forget that Everything that enters your mind, be it a thought or something someone says, is going to have this physical effect. And so it's fun to listen in. It's fun to just tune in. So that's how it changed my life forever. Because then I started going, thoughts are not just this esoteric thing. Because I do feel like when people talk about the mind-body connection, Mm -hmm. it's kind of lost its stick over the years because people, oh, you know, it's (laughs) mind-body. Yeah, it's become a trend. It's become a trend. Yeah. And I'm like, great. I'm, I'm stoked that there is this kind of reawakening of these practices and stuff. So long as people really do actually experience it and really understand how literally real it is. 
So for somebody listening right now that's maybe addicted to busyness, you know, addicted to just staying active and being activated from the morning, the minute they wake up to the minute they go to bed, what would be maybe not a 10-day retreat solution, but a simple solution to help them start to become more in tune with themselves? Just meditating. I mean, so if, if that's something you want, if you're happy being super busy and you want to just go from birth to death that way, fucking do it. That's great. Don't let anyone stop you. If you want to try something else, I would definitely say meditating five, 10 minutes a day. There's a billion apps out there. If I can recommend one fantastic one, it's called Waking Up by Sam Harris. A lot of people know about it. And you can just meditate on your own. And there's countless guided meditations out there. Yeah, you don't need to do a 10-day retreat to feel the effects of it. I was meditating for about a year and a half before I did a 10-day Mm. Yeah. Okay. I didn't mean to go in that direction, but that was fascinating. So I had to follow. <laughs> I had to follow the cord. So okay, I want to get into your music career a little bit. When you and I had our first conversation, you talked about how you were like starring in these big roles in musical theater, but then you saw the guys in the pit, and you're like, "I want to be down there." <laughs> <laughs> See what an egotistical maniac I was. I was in like you know junior high and high school. I did a little bit of theater. But I was like the star of my little theater groups or whatever. And I think I kind of maximized it because then I was sort of like the biggest fish in that pond in my little world, obviously. And then the jazz band kids down in the orchestra pit were so cool. And I saw that like they didn't want to hang out with the theater kids. And I'm like, wait, why? Are they, are they cooler than the theater kids? And then I kind of started talking like, well, yeah, I mean, jazz. <laughs> It's like way harder. It's intellectual. <laughs> and also I played guitar. So a rite of passage for any guitar player, if you can get accepted into the jazz band, you're a good guitar player because you need to know jazz chords. You can't just, these campfire chords aren't going to cut it. So you need to know your shit. And so I was like, I'm going to be in jazz band because that will mean I'm a good guitar player. So I got into jazz band probably because no one else was really playing guitar. All the guitar players were mostly stoners and had no interest in being in waking up at six in the morning to go to jazz band. So I was the perfect fit. And I remember I was not that good. And I remember asking the band teacher if I could get the music a week in advance so that I can study the music and learn it and then show up as if he's just handing out because everyone's sight reading. Everyone's good enough to sight read except for me. So everyone's showing up. They're getting the music. They're just nailing it. And I'm like nailing it too. And I'm like, yeah, I just got this. Crazy guys, huh? Look at us. Jazz band kids. And so then I started turning down roles in theater because I wanted to be in the orchestra pit. How do you think that little kid that came in like over prepared to make sure that no one could see a whole in his process, and his musical intellect, does he still come out now or do you trust in yourself more? Mm, that's a really interesting question. It definitely does come out. So that is to say the kid who doesn't want to be vulnerable, right? Like vulnerability has always been difficult for me. Yeah. You know, so... I have that kid too. That's why I can see it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah. so vulnerability is just to say, guys, I'm not as fast as you you guys need to slow down for me is just not a nice feeling. So in a, in a weird way, vulnerability is actually like what people love, I think, when it comes to art. And so doubling down on vulnerability has become something I've been trying to do. And yeah, I guess, I guess my vulnerable self rears its head a lot in my work. In terms of the day-to-day -day person I am, I'm sure that I hide him a lot. Like I'm sure, I, I know that there's some deep, deep parts of me that I'm suppressing. I don't cry a lot. And when I do cry, I cry by myself. Like I don't, it's almost weird when I'm in front of other people, how hard my body works to suppress tears is amazing. It's almost like even if I wanted to cry, I couldn't because my body will do all this stuff. It's like tear ducts off, blood level down. Like <laughs> it's like all this stuff happens that I'm like, I can't even control. That's how deeply wired I am to avoid vulnerability, mm. except for when I'm alone. Then when I'm alone, I'll do a lot of things and I'll spill it out in whatever work I'm doing. And I guess that's where it rears its head. Mm. 
Beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, of course. I really appreciate that. I mean, I I just have to say it's really refreshing to speak to somebody who is so self-aware and especially a man who is so self-aware because I think sharing your process, it's going to help other men who are going through similar things to start to admit mm. what's going on with them. Because I think in general, we have a a, a big imbalance in our culture of masculine and feminine energy. We're not comfortable with acknowledging that we all have both and that it's totally. a balance. And I think for a lot of my career, even though I am a pretty feminine person, I, I shunned that because I thought it like wasn't a strength. And now I'm learning to find the power and the femininity yeah. and to own that and to try to open up and to not be, Amen. to feel like I have to be perfect all the time. Cause I'm not like, I can't even pretend like I'm not even like you with the jazz chords where I could like go and learn them and come back. Like I'm still going to mess up 15 <laughs> of them, you know? Oh no, oh, no, I did too. I was probably just fabricating my story. <laughs> no, no, but I'm sure you were like spot on, you know, I try to do that stuff too. And it just... It never works. And I noticed that when people love me the most, like what you're saying, is when I'm like, oh, that was a disaster. That was weird. I don't know. Like, I'm trying. I really love this, but it's not going that well. But right. here I am. And, Ugh. you know. It's so refreshing when you can be in a room of people. I mean, like to anyone trying to be creative, if you can surround yourself, and usually it will be very few people because so few people are okay with this. If you can surround yourself with people who at the end of your long, arduous day, you guys can go, oh man, we totally blew it and be okay with that. And you still love each other and you still will show up for each other the next day. And you're not going to go like, well, I'm not going to work with her again because like that didn't go well. That's why in like new sessions with people and sort of like the speed dating when you're kind of trying to find who you're going to mesh with and stuff, we want to do well so well because we only get that one day to prove ourselves. Mm -hmm. And it's like art doesn't rush itself. Art doesn't prove itself. Art appears when it wants to. And if we can just show up with our antennas and receive it, and I'm not even talking about God, I'm talking about something else. But like if we can just receive it, when it wants to come, but we need to, it won't show up on some Tuesdays, you know? So like there is this really difficult thing where you need to be okay with totally laying it all out on the line, being super vulnerable, and then the thing you're trying to do totally not working. And that that's, it is, it is akin to just having friends that you can cry in front of. Yeah. It's a human first approach, which I think works best in any yeah. sort of environment especially creative. Totally. And I, when you were saying that, I got this idea. I was like, your creative angels need a day off sometimes, you know? Oh, yeah. Like they can't be whispering in your ear all day, every day. They need a day to rest too. <laughs> Otherwise, like it's one of the highs of music is when you suddenly, and you've had this too, I'm sure, where you feel like you're channeling something that doesn't even belong to you. It's so inspired. And it's like you've opened this portal and it comes out of you in five minutes. Yeah. You almost can't write fast enough to get all of it down, so many of the best songs were written in five minutes because it was that download. So much of the best work in any medium was done that way. Or they'll come in dreams. It just, it comes from elsewhere. It almost like the best work feels like it's better than your ability. Like, like my best songs are better than my abilities as a songwriter, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, it totally does. That's how I found out I was a songwriter was sleep. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It, the song started coming to me in sleep. Right, right. We were talking about that. Yeah. Actually, Em and I are reading this such a fascinating book right now about sleep. And Emily's your girlfriend. Yes, Emily's my girlfriend. Yes. Great gal. Um, amazing gal. <laughs> we're reading this amazing book about sleep mm. and all the transformative things that sleep does both creatively and everything. There isn't any facet of a human's life that isn't hugely affected by sleep. But where it gets into creativity is where I'm super stoked about it. And so this is also something I've been trying to include in my in the process is just the trust in sleep. So working on something, working really hard on it, and even into those late hours where you're like, I don't even know what I'm doing anymore. Your brain feels like cotton candy. And then just going to sleep and knowing that your brain is going to work on it without you. And in the morning... Oftentimes, you'll have this fresh perspective on it. And the answer would just be like, oh, just that. Oh, thanks, brain. I love you. Right? It really does feel that way. Like you had nothing to do with it. So good. Yeah. Okay. So 
we were in the jazz pit playing these songs. Yeah. Then you decided you wanted to have an artist career. I know you went to Berkeley School of Music. You were on The Voice. Like, tell me about this phase of your life when you were really pursuing the artist career, what it felt like, and why you ultimately decided to go towards songwriting instead. Yeah, totally. I think I just did the path of least resistance for any artist. I just did wherever people were like, ooh, come here. I went to the Berklee College of Music in Boston, just another one of those, ooh, you're a musician? Come here. So then I left. I did American Idol because if you're a singer, that's a good idea. Seems like a great idea. And it was a great idea. I got through to like the, I think it was the right before the Vegas round. And then basically went, I'm, I was born in Israel, I should mention. And I, I started doing a lot of YouTube covers. So I got big on like, I didn't get big doing it, but I, I got big into doing it. I would do my own arrangements of covers. And so I did like a string arrangement of Titanium. And it sounded almost like Eleanor Rigby or like Viva La Vida by Coldplay. It's a more updated reference. Someone on The Voice in Israel, a producer, saw it. Loved it and wanted me to do it on the show. So then I flew to Israel and did the voice there and got quite far there. Got offered a record deal in Israel. So basically I had this opportunity. They were like, you could live here. We'll offer you a contract for five years to be an artist here. And so then I, I remember being at this like real crossroads. I was like, okay, I could do this in Israel. I could be like a fairly big dude in Israel as an artist. and then. Yeah, it was sort of like this real like reckoning moment where I was like, do I really want to do this? And I think I'd always done the artist thing because that was what the world was kind of telling me I was. It was like this identity thing. It was like, you're an artist. Clearly, you're a singer. You're a songwriter. And I never really asked myself if that was really anything I wanted to do or if that was what was just the path of least resistance. Also, I remember we talked about this a little bit before, but when I was a kid, I always would play songs, the songs that I would write, but I would imagine someone else's face on my face, like superimposed over my face, singing those songs. So I would like write a song and I would imagine myself on stage singing it, but then Brian McKnight's face would be on my head or Justin Timberlake's face would be on my head. And I didn't really think about that for most of my life until this moment. And then I was like, I feel like I never believed my own voice. I always imagined someone else's voice singing those songs. And I would love writing melodies for other people's voices, songs that I had no business singing. So I think that's sort of what made me realize. I, and also just learning that songwriting for other people could be a job. I also just didn't know that. I didn't know you could do that. Right. So I think that's that was the turning point for me. So you said no to that record deal and then you moved. I said no to that record deal. I came back here. Wow. And then I was like, okay, so I think I'm going to stop with these little YouTube videos. I had a blast making them. I worked very hard on them, like really editing them and really. They're gorgeous, by the way. They're still up. I watched <laughs> them this morning. <laughs> <laughs> They're hysterical. And it was a blast I, to this day. I don't regret a single moment of it. And I learned so much from it. I do think that the best songwriters were at one point artists because there is a resonance that you need to have with an artist when you're in the room with an artist to think like an artist yes, and to know what an artist is trying to do because the song is only a slice of the work. The work is the whole presentation, the whole image of the artist, their vibe, their personality, their voice, and yes, the song. And that's a great hint for anybody, no matter what facet of creativity or your career you're into. If you can know every role in the room or as many as you possibly can, yes. you're going to be better at your main craft. You're going to be a better leader. You're going to be a better collaborator. You're just going to be better. And this is why I do encourage people to try everything because it just makes you a richer, Absolutely. more diverse creative. Yeah. So you were signed by Warner Chapel at 30. Yes. So yeah, I think it was like, was it? Actually, I think it was like 28 because I've been with them oh. now. This will be like four years now, I think. Your Saturn return. My what? Oh, <laughs> your Saturn return. Do you know that? I did not know. <laughs> okay. Yeah. The Saturn return is basically when Saturn comes back to the place it was at when you were born. And it's a year of great change in your life. Oh, no way. Mm -hmm. Wow. That's fascinating. So it usually happens between 27 and 29. Some major things will move. Like I believe it. Yeah. Like I changed jobs. I started 
started getting out of this relationship I was in for a really long time. So lots of different things can occur. But then like the backlash of it happens until about 33. Oh, interesting. At which time you have your Jesus year and you fully step into your power. Really? Oh, so because my birthday is in like couple of weeks so i'm really hoping for some big cloud to open get ready i'll hold you to it yeah <laughs> it's coming it's coming you're gonna walk on water amazing i uh- can't wait <laughs> yeah when um and i remember there was like this long period a couple of years of that of writing and writing and writing and writing for other people so i started making that my new intention i was like okay now it's not mikey's voice anymore now it's whoever anyone but me and I started to just do that. And then, uh, yeah, like there's this very basic process of a little networking, a little meeting people and playing songs for people. And I met my manager that way and then signed to Warner Chapel. And I've been doing the songwriting thing for a while now. And I love it. And what's been interesting for me has been since signing with Warner Chapel, I don't know that this was my choice. It just sort of dawned on me. This questioning of like, it might have been the meditation going like, why do you have to be a songwriter? What is, you're a creative person, yes, but like, who said you're a songwriter only? So about two years ago, I was on a songwriting retreat, funny enough, and I started to have this idea for a book, or actually it was for a movie. And then it became a book. But that for me was more of an exercise in destroying my identity than it was in trying to write a movie. It was more an exercise in going, who said I'm a songwriter? And sort of having this audacity to just do something that the world did not ask me to do. Because no one was asking me to write a a movie. Oh, I love that. Can Can you say that again? Have the audacity... To do something no one was asking you to do. Yeah, that's sort of what it felt like. That's fucking creativity. That's everything. (laughs) Because nobody ever asked you to do anything. Exactly. Nobody asked you to do anything except fall in a line and just do the thing that everybody else was doing and just keep it moving. But you chose to expand once before. So what's to say you couldn't do it again? Right. And it was like this obliterating feeling of like, what is anything? Like, because even songwriting, which is such a music, is such a creative field, you can actually get very railroady with it. Any creative field. And how many people do we know in creative fields that when you talk to them, you're like, do you work a corporate job or are you in a creative field? Because you sound really stressed and you don't sound like a creative person. You sound like you hate showing up to your creative job every day. And you hear it in the work. I hear songs all the time that sound like a tired person showed up at a tired session and wrote a tired song. And they just did the things that oh, you know, the trendy songs sound like this. Let's make these types of melodies. Let's put these drums on it. Let's put this instrument on it. And it becomes now, it's not creative anymore. You're not making new connections. You're just putting the same chords together that have always been done. So for me, it was like, I I was starting to feel a little bit that way with music. So I, in a way, abandoned music for a second to almost to just rekindle my relationship with creativity, period. To be, like you said before, a kid again in something. To have that child mind again. That first time, I don't know anything. I have no business doing this. And it was so life-changing because it was super fun. And suddenly, all these ideas were coming. I spent a year working on the screenplay, made it into a, a bad screenplay. And then when I showed it to my friends, a lot of my friends were like, I think this is a book. I, I don't think this is like a you need, this needs more pages. So I was like, ah, shit. Okay. And I started writing it from scratch as a book. And I've been working on that for about a year and a half. And it's been the most, one of the most fulfilling things I've ever done in my life. And a byproduct of it that I did not see happening was how much it rekindled my love for music. It taught me that exploring multiple disciplines, not only enriches that discipline, But all of them, all the boats rise with that tide, you know, like it's really, it's made me not afraid to write down business ideas, movie ideas, 
And I hope to pursue all of it, you know, make an app, make a company, make a- Hell yeah. Anything, you know, you can do fucking anything. The only limits are the ones we put on ourselves. And what you've discovered is the power in being a multi-passionate creative, that it's a gift, not a burden. Exactly. So I have this like long thing in my in, in my journal and it's just, it's called, what is this? I'll just write a thing down. And in a year or two from now, I'll read it sometimes and I'll just be like, I feel like that's a Facebook post, or I feel like that's a podcast idea, or I feel like that's a movie, or that's a book, or that's a song lyric. That That's just sort of like a fun little exercise that anyone can do, you know, if you just don't limit yourself to whatever it is that you do. But obviously, we have to make money. We have to yeah, yeah. get groceries and all we'll that. We'll make the cash. We'll make the cash. We'll make the cash. We'll make the cash. <laughs> you know, I think it's great to have, you know, the thing that's your cash cow. And then, but these other things can also start to become that. And again, like you said, you've many times in your life followed the yeses. And then when it became a no for you, moved on to something different. Mm-hmm. And I think just keep doing that. Yeah. And it really does come down to like, if you can learn to tune into your body, your your body will guide you much better than anyone else. So like... Because I think we're all asking ourselves, like, what is our compass? It's scary to think that you can do anything. It can be crippling to just have every road in front of you. So where do you go? Just to circle back on that little meditation point. For me, that did become a great way to hone my compass. And it was the reason why when I started writing that screenplay, I kept writing it. We've all done that. We've all written a thing down. But then there's like, do I want to invest in this? Do I want to put my chips down on this for two and a half years? For me, it was yes. But why? It wasn't my brain telling me that. It was like my body was excited when I was writing it. It was like, ooh, like I felt it. I really, really felt it. And so that's why I've been investing in it and only because of that. So that's another thing I would say is for any creative person, it is really, really important to learn to listen to your body because in any creative pursuit, that will be ultimately what will put objectivity in your work. Do you still ask other people for advice? And if so, how can you be sure not to confuse their voice with your own? Oh, all the time. And again, it's that same thing. If I play someone a song and they say, what if you just remove the pre-chorus and I try it and I get that feeling? I'm like, holy shit. You were right. Because the thing is, it has nothing to do with me. It's nothing to do with my brain. It's a feeling. So when someone gives me good advice, I feel it. Ah. And then it's a win-win. But if I'm, if my ego's involved and someone says, you know, some people like you'll ask them advice and they just want to give advice. So they'll just find something to say. You can sense that. If you don't feel it's better, as opposed to think it's better, then it's probably not. And then also, I have to just say that I'm wrong so often. So there's that too. (laughs) I want to ask you one more thing about songwriting before I get to my final question. When you're going into a session, like there's so many different energy dynamics. Sometimes you're writing with the artist. Sometimes you're writing with another songwriter for an artist. What is your approach when you're entering a session and how does it vary from session to session? So that is a great question. And it's an art unto itself. It's totally its own art. On top of being a craftsperson, you're also riding waves of a room and you're in a way, sometimes you're a therapist, sometimes you're a, you're just a producer, sometimes you need to know when to shut up and let someone ride a wave. You're also reading and sensing people's vibes and energies. Every day is different with that. Every person is different. Sometimes I'll work with artists that know exactly what they want and they are such artists. They just, they have such a strong thing and they're channeling something that day. And then my job on those days is to get the hell out of the way. And some days the artist or whoever I'm working with is looking to me to be the beacon of inspiration or whatever. And so I'll always, before every session, I'll do like a one or two hour power hour of I'll just vomit creativeness in whatever way. And so I'll have something usually just ready in case the room needs it. Oh, I see. So you you make some sort of song before you go into the- some start. Yeah, yeah. Okay. a beat, and it could be anything—a baseline, a beat, an idea, a concept, a lyric, a whole. Sometimes a whole song will come out, and then I'll just keep it for myself. But other times I'll have just like a start. But it's a really—I don't know—it's a difficult thing to answer in terms of the process 
if if I can put a process to collaboration, I actually want to write a book about collaboration because I think it's such a underserved topic. Collaborating is really hard. To do successful collaboration, I think is really hard because now there are two equal visionaries that need to make one vision. And sometimes when you're lucky, the vision is greater than the sum of its parts. But in a lot of cases, you just have this weird Frankenstein thing where both people had to compromise and it's not that good. You would have done it better on your own. That happens a lot. You know, you would have done it better on your own and your collaborator would have done it better on their own. So collaborating is really hard. And when you can sense that your collaborators are more interested in saving face and having their egos satiated more than they're interested in the product being objectively the best, you have a problem. I've had sessions where I've kind of been like, all right, I just need to get through this day, but we're not going to come out with anything good today, you know? But I've had days where I was working with super egotistical people and they really are channeling something. So I'll just get out of the way. <laughs> and I just literally, I like some of the best songs I had nothing to do with. But, you know, I do think that that is also part of collaborating is like that is a job to shut up, to shut up and just let someone do their thing. And I feel like a lot of up and coming songwriters feel like they need to just spit things out. So they'll just say they'll just add content into the room not realizing that they're not thinking about it, whether it's good or bad content. They're just creating stuff. And now there's a lot of jumble and the room's kind of what I call messy. And loud. Just a mess of ideas, loud and messy. And there's not like, you can't hear the subtle things that are trying to come through, the real truth, the real good gems that are trying to come through. So in collaborating, I think there is listening. Listening is maybe the biggest. Hell yeah. Maybe that's what I should have just said from the beginning. Oh, one more thing. What What is a recent song you've written that you're like super proud of? That's out that you can talk about. That's coming out. That, yeah, yeah. Um, Let me go on the Spotify. Spotty. Um, There's a song called Bigger that I really love that came out with an artist called Stan Walker and Parson James. It was like a duet um, that they did that I actually wrote that song when I was 13. I wrote the first version of that song when I was 13. Hey, young Mikey. And then held on to it for a long time. And and then it just reared its head one day in a session. I was like, oh, yeah, this idea. I was like, I kind of still, this kind of holds up still. And I played it for my friend Parson and he loved it. So we just wrote the rest of the song. And so, yeah, then it finally made its way. And then it became this big song and I think it's doing really well in New Zealand. It's been out. It's been a wonderful little- What isn't doing well in New Zealand right now? I- <laughs> I'm so jealous. I know. Oh. <laughs> oh, let's move there. Mikey, you're a delight. I could talk to you for a million hours. You, you'll have to come back and we'll do like a really deep dive on spirituality and, and meditation and all that. Sure. All of it. But before we wrap out, I want to get back to young Mikey, to our little guy. I end every podcast with the same couple questions because I think creativity is deeply connected to the inner child and taking care of that little one. Yeah. And so if you and young Mikey were standing in the same room looking at each other and he's seeing you now, uh -huh. what do you think he would say to you and why? Oh, what a great question. What would he say to me? Um, I wish you got taller. I thought we were going to get taller. And I think he'd be really proud. I think he'd be really proud. I think he'd be he'd be like you figured out the stress problem with us. <laughs> mm. Um just like the stress of worrying so much about the future and like I have no idea what the future holds, but my stress about it has gone down a ton and I think that's something I struggled with a lot as a kid. And what would you say to him and why? I would say don't worry. Because it, you know, so far it's turned out fine. And yeah, I don't, I, I guess it's because, because I don't regret anything that's happened. You know, like my life could have gone a billion other ways, better and worse, but I, it went the way it went and it was, it's been perfectly as it should. Like everything makes perfect causal sense. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't change anything. And I think that's in some way or another, I'd say that to him. Well, I think you both did a great job and are doing a great job. <laughs> oh, that's very sweet. And I just want to commend you for 
for the person you are and for maintaining the love and the joy of music and creativity in a business that often jades people. Um, You are very open-hearted and kind and generous and genuinely love it. And it's so refreshing. So thank you for being here and for your heart. Oh, that's so sweet of you. And likewise, I love everything you're doing, really. Like, I'm so impressed by people like you who are such Renaissance people who just will just do anything just because and not fully see the road three feet ahead of them and just have the balls to do it. And you're clearly a thousand percent that type of person. And so obviously you don't need me to tell you, but please keep doing everything you're doing. Okay. You too. It's a pact. (laughs) Thank you so much. You're awesome. Thank you for listening and thanks to my guest, Michael Jade. For more info on Mikey, follow him at Michael Jade Music on Instagram. You can also find all of his songs by searching Michael Jade Playlist on Spotify. Thanks to Liz Full for the show's theme music. You can follow her at Liz Full. And again, thank you. If you like what you heard today, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. Follow the show on Spotify, share the show with a friend, post about it on social media, and tag me when you post at Lauren LaGrasso and at Unleash Your Inner Creative. I will repost to share my gratitude. Also tag Mikey at Michael Jade Music so he can share too. My wish for you this week is that you look at your own creative path, ask yourself what feels good to you in your mind, body, and soul, and that you let that become your arrow. Also, don't forget that my music video for my song Freak Show, which is a song about mental health, self-love and self-actualization premieres this Friday, February 12th in honor of Valentine's Day. Subscribe to my YouTube page, youtube.com slash Lauren LaGrasso to be the first to see it. I love you and I believe in you. Talk with you next week.